questions from our listeners and from Ocean's Edge Realty, a sponsor of the fourth annual International Maritime Film Festival, a contest of films celebrating the heritage, spirit of adventure, and ingenuity of boats and waterborne pursuits, September 27th through 29th at the Alamo Theater in Bucksport. Tickets and information at MaritimeFilmFestival.com. It's 10.01, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Let's Talk Animals with your host, Dr. John Hunt, is up next. Good morning. This is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarts to Zebras. We are live today, so you can call in at 469-0500 if you have any questions on our topic or comments. We'd love to listen to uh, your thoughts. Of course, I always plug my pet sounds on Sunday morning. Uh, Some new pet sounds coming up will be titled things like Do Penguins Have Knees? Uh, Dog Kisses and Licking, Good or Not So Good? Uh, couldn't get elected a dog catcher. Those are some topics I'll be covering on Pet Sounds. But today, we're going to spend an hour, a uh, very interesting topic on dart frogs. And my guest is Mr. Tom Goodman. He's a financial advisor in Bucksport. Tom and I have known each other for a number of years. Um, he has not made me a millionaire yet, but uh, at least he'll be here to give us some rich information on dart frogs. Good morning, Tom. Morning, John. How are you doing? Good. Yourself? Very, very good. Excellent. Thanks for coming down the road and getting out of your busy office uh, to to be with us today. While we were getting to know each other's friends and the financial advisor, I, I learned that you had been a uh, an avid frog aficionado uh, or expert <laughs> or whatever. Uh and I like I ask all my my guests is how did you get here from there in terms of your frogs, not your financial stuff. <laughs> well, it um, I guess you go back to my background, which was a uh, aquatic biology, and um, worked in that field for about ten years, and then in what capacity as a teacher? Or? Um, I was an aquatic biologist at a small consulting firm in Newport, Maine. Oh. And um, after graduate school, I did that. And then it it was time to move on. I found there weren't a lot of jobs in the aquatic biology field in this part of Maine. I wanted to stay here. So I uh, changed jobs and or careers and started doing financial advising. While doing that, I really missed biology. So I started a uh, – had a 230-gallon reef tank at the office and ran that for about 10 or 11 years. Just hanging around at just, the office or did you just – <laughs> did you start did you start this reef uh aquarium as a as just part of the office just uh, i mean i well i needed space to put a 230 gallon tank and the house wasn't really an option let's just say that okay. and um <laughs> and so and, and clients seemed to really like it um and so you know we had that for a while got a little bored with that and um and then i had a another tank at the house and after i flooded my son's bedroom a couple of times, I was told under no uncertain terms, I was no longer allowed to have water upstairs, which totally justified. <laughs> and um, my son and I started kind of looking at what we wanted to do in the tank. And I've always uh, enjoyed tropical plants. And so uh, somehow, and I don't actually know what it was, about five years ago, we uh, came upon poison dart frogs. And uh, voila, started a 
converted that tank to a poison dart frog tank. And then a uh, couple of other tanks came along. And then, you know, while all that was 31 tanks ago. We, oh, okay. Ah, okay. Tom's mic is not working, so I'm going to yap a little bit. So, you, how many tanks? You've had a certain number of tanks. Excuse us for this uh, mechanical difficulty here. Technical difficulty. Technical. Is that better? I don't know. Oh. We'll find out. So, how's it now? Well, we're going to uh, try to get. Say, um, is this better? There you go. Okay, there we go. <clears throat> okay, okay. So we'll kind you of go do all that over again. A little bit. So you had some. You had a uh, flooding in your house. Yes, I flooded the house, and um, your son and you got wanted to know what to do uh, with your tanks. Yeah. So we started looking around, and somehow poison dart frogs came into it. I mean, uh, I like how? tropical plants. Okay. And again, I've always been involved in biology, so it, you know whatever it was in that area was fine and poison dart frogs just seemed to kind of hop in no pun intended <laughs> although that was a pretty good pun yes um because the, of the tropical plants because that's where they that was kind of led us to that and then we set up that 125 gallon tank and then um a couple more tanks popped up in a, a rack and then a couple more tanks and that i think i'm now at 31 tanks in the basement i have taken over the basement and um i'm working on the 32nd right now so there's no, no tanks in the upstairs? None. By My per, hobby is confined to the basement now, per and order. that is completely justifiable. Okay. So you have 30? How, R- many, how many tanks? Thir- 32 I'm working okay, on. Okay. So the last one now. So how did you, you know, you, got with, you started with your first tank, uh-huh. and how did you decide what frogs to, I mean, how did you come about the... Uh, selecting frogs and right and learning about all this stuff. Where did you learn all this stuff? Um, this one's interesting. When I get into a hobby, I tend to read way too much. And in this case, it it did not start with books. It was all online. This is kind of the first thing I've really done as a hobby that I've just used online resources. And there are some some very good resources out there. There are a couple of uh, um, suppliers that have really good how-to information, kind of started there and then just expanded from there. And I started with a, uh, you know, what is, is generally considered a, a fairly easy frog to deal with and, you know, start small and then go big. So how many other people in Maine uh, are frog uh, aficionados? <laughs> I like frog, that. Frog keepers. <laughs> yes. Um, I, are there I know. Of you guys I know of one other person. I actually met this past weekend when I was down in New York at a convention, and um, he is down in the, um, the Portland area. I'm not sure. I think Portland, and um, he has a, a rather large collection also, and has been into it for far more years than I have. I still consider myself a new, inexperienced person in the field. So it's just two people, as far as you know. I mean, I'm sure there's more. I mean, there's out more, there. you know, here and there. Yeah, but, but those are not a lot. So you don't have a lot to draw on and. But again, but the online the resources gives you global access yeah. to all the information out there, and that's quite nice. Let's let's start getting in, into this a little bit. Again, uh, I'm here with uh, Tom Goodman. He's uh, a dart frog keeper. What, what every time you, you, I don't what know, but I like you? this changing it every time. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fun. I know. I'll get into other names. I'll, I'll make up some. 
And uh, so if you have any questions about dart frogs uh, as we go along the discussion, please call us at 469-0500. So first thing is um, legality. As you know, uh, dart frogs I would consider an exotic animal, exotic species, and federal and state governments have decided to uh, make some laws and rules to protect these animals Mm -hmm. and protect people for safety. And so did you for so one of the things you did find out if you could actually have a frog in Maine? Right. If you um if if you're interested in that, you just go to the maine.gov and then go to the um IFNW Inland Fisheries and Wildlife section. IF, IFNW. Uh, yeah. And okay. um or I think I typed in um uh, what was it? Uh amphibians in Maine or permits, I think. You know, anything like that you can find it. it it's it's a little bit wonky getting in it, but they have a pretty decent website, and they have the permits, and then you can go down and see which species in whatever it is, whether it's you know mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, what have you, and they list what requires a permit in the state of Maine, which then complies with federal regulations also. So does the Maine, the Maine laws, uh, if you get a permit in Maine it, that meets the federal or the other way around? If you get a federal permit, then the Maine will accept that? I mean, the, the ones that are listed in Maine – is requiring a permit are not nationally required to have a permit. Um, that's a main thing. There's, okay. there's probably, okay. I believe there were two species of dart frogs, some uh, mantellas, which are not dart frogs, but they're kind of dart frog-like from uh, Madagascar, and then a couple other species that I did not recognize. So, so for the listeners, it's important that you know the federal laws and the state laws because there's going to be differences. The, the key is, if I mean the marketplace for dart frogs and, and most amphibians at least is primarily um, online. There are several websites. There are several um, individuals that have you know kind of as a hobby business, and um, Facebook to some extent, and then a uh, another social media site called uh, MeWe seems to be where most of the um, activity is taking place. And if you're buying from reputable people, you know that hobbyists such as myself that have just gotten into it to a another level, I guess you could say, you know, know who you're buying from, you know, know where the frogs are coming from, know if they're wild caught or captive bred and things of that nature. And that will keep you in line is the, the black market is, is, is a worry or a concern. Um, and as long as you know who you're getting them from, where they're coming from, if you're not a reputable person, it comes out really quick in the community and it's pretty obvious who that is, and they're, they're start- rather shunned. But if you're starting as hobbyists, are there some things to – so you, you go online, you find out that the frogs are okay, mm-hmm. you go, you get a permit. That's the first thing you have to do. Well, and, and again, the permits, there's only two dart frogs that are required to be permitted in the state. Okay. And you know, for me, I wasn't interested in those species, so and therefore, so I didn't need a permit. I, you need no permit. Okay. So the second step is is making sure you're uh, you're dealing with reputable uh, suppliers. Correct. And you said it's pretty obvious, but someone new, like if I started, how would I? How can I? Are there questions I can ask, or are there things that will come out online, or when you're talking to these suppliers, that will kind of give you an indication that they aren't reputable? Well. <clears throat> If you're, I guess from my perspective, doing it right, you have – you've gone in and you look around a bit. You're you're gathering information. You start to talk to people. You know, most of the people in the community are very happy to 
give you information and help you along because they want new people to do it correctly. They don't want people going in and, you know, with poor husbandry and lack of knowledge and killing the frogs. You know, it's, it's we're not conservationists, but we have conservation in mind. And therefore, it's, it's important to most in the community that people that are starting out are doing it right. You know, I found several people um, from some of the, the larger suppliers in the country that have that helped me quite a bit with both what they had online and then just talking to people. And then also a lot of individual hobbyists were more than happy to come out and give me information when asked. And it was that was the way to do it, without a doubt. And then they can recommend suppliers and they that can they recommend, use. Yeah. Okay, I mean, good. mostly everything you're buying is going to be – or tra- buying, trading, or selling is to other individual hobbyists. Okay, so that shouldn't be too complicated then. No, it's it's as long as you're willing to spend a little bit of time on it, you know, not just you know go to the pet store and say, "Ooh, I want that frog," right? Which that's probably a guaranteed way to to kill your new little amphibian. Um, then y- doing it that way will get you what you need. Okay, very good. Let's get into the the frog, some frogs themselves. First of all, they're amphibians, correct? And some people may not know what amphibian is versus a reptile. Uh, if you can give us a little so, brief <clears throat> definition of amphibian. Basically, an amphibian requires part of its life, which is the the larval stage, in the water. So the tadpole is in water. Um, you have with dart frogs, and again, that's where I most of my knowledge is. I know very little about other things. Well, some other things, but <laughs> we don't yeah, go on, I saw that. Don't go into that. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> I set myself up on that one. Yes, you did. Um, and so, uh, with dart frogs, they typically will lay their eggs on the ground, on plant leaves, um, and then, depending on the individual, sometimes they, they will typically transport them. When the eggs hatch, you'll get a little tadpole start wiggling in what's left of the egg, and when they're in the egg, they're kind of C-shaped. And when they hatch and break the membrane, they, they it's, it's kind of a straight tadpole. You can see them stretched out. The adult will actually come down and kind of stick their butts by them, squat by them, I guess. Is, you can say a f- frog squats. And the tadpole will wiggle its way up on the back of the frog. And then the adult will transport it to an appropriate spot with water. With dart frogs, it's typically in um, the leaf axles of bromeliads. And bromeliads they, like an orchid? Um, it's, it's, or it's flowers out. They, yeah, they're kind of the, you'll see them at, um, plant stores are kind of a, it's like a radial, um, plant. They're, they're up on they're trees, epiphytic. right? They're typically up in trees. Yeah. Okay. They're that's, epiphytic. I guess that's yeah, okay. important thing. So they go up in the tree, the frogs and they, I mean, some of them are on the ground too, but, and they don't necessarily have to use bromeliads, but that tends to be one of the more common ways with the dart frogs. Right. And, um, and then they will back into the water and the, the, uh, the, the, the tadpole will wiggle off in there. And then depending on the, uh, the species, some actually are what you would call obligate egg feeders, whereas the, uh, the female must give the tadpole unfertile eggs or the tadpole will not eat anything and it'll just perish. And so those are the ones that I've kind of been taking an interest in lately. And so she lays eggs. Infertile eggs, infertile eggs. So, so it's kind of cool. The uh, the tadpole will sit there and wiggle, and you can see the the little puddle yeah. in the bromeliad leaf, um, you know, vibrating, and that's signaling 
the mom to come along and feed me. Oh, and then and she'll she'll that stimulates her. She backs in, lays an egg or two, oh, okay. and then while all there's food and they make rounds. You know, in captivity, I, I see them doing it every couple of days. You know, and, and it varies depending on. So the, the fertile frog. eggs are first laid first, and they're laid out in the ground, typically on the ground on leaves or on you know on leaves and plants up in the trees. Okay, so just to give our listeners more uh, comparison, frogs, we see this in the spring can lay these bunches of eggs in like the water. Like a, a large egg mass, yes. Like, and then they hatch out and then they live their life there. So this is a little more complicated. This, so this with, takes some more um Yeah, you're referring more to uh, to uh, tree frogs. Yeah. And they will – some of them will lay mass, egg masses in water. Some will lay them up in trees above water. And then when they hatch, they'll just drop into the water. There's no parental care whatsoever. Okay. Even in dart frogs, there are some that produce, have no parental care. I'm just referring to the ones that I've taken an interest in. Yeah, which is kind of cool. Which are the obligates, yes. So they'll go through their metamorphosis. In other words, they go to tadpole and they start becoming adults. Correct. Then they – well, when do they jump out of the bromeliad? So uh, I just had one come out and some have really been trying to get some babies out of too. So it's kind of exciting. And they they come out and they're probably an eighth of an inch long depending on the species – and they just kind of hop out of the water, and they'll go back in the water, and they'll kind of move back and forth for a day or two, and they'll sit in the leaf for a day or two, and then eventually they'll work their way down to the ground where the food sources are. At that point, is the tail gone? Um, it absorbs, still... and that's still where they're getting nutrition from. Oh, okay. You know, when they first come out of the water, you can see it varies to a little bit of a tail to just a little stump. Okay. Okay. Or even to a point, kind of. So you're getting uh, you're getting babies in your aquariums. Yes. And maybe we should talk about that later, about how you did that, because that's pretty Yeah, I really had nothing to do with their babies. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably that's probably a good thing, because then you, yes, would, you wouldn't need a permit, I think, to get into that kind of thing. So uh, so the frogs you're you're dealing with are called dart frogs. Are, are there yes. other names for these kind of frogs? Um, I mean, I, uh, basically poison dart frogs, okay. arrow frogs, poison Columbian arrow frogs. frogs. Colombian dark frogs. Is that a, I've never really heard that one. But they're from Col- Colombia. Is one of the is one of the one of the uh, um, regions they come from. Okay, like it in Colombia does not. Um, there's actually only one um, organization in Colombia that has a permit to export frogs legally, and they're a, a rather large conservation group. And they do a lot of reintroduction. Um, actually, one of the the uh, the the founder of that organization was at the conference I was at this weekend, and. Um, they do a lot of good work, and they have a permit. So if you want that type of frog, um, that's the only place you can get them from. And then a lot of the funds that they raise go to their conservation efforts. Oh, good, good. And where else are they, are dart frogs? Uh, Central America? Central, South America. Any place else? That's no, I mean, I would say most of my frogs are from Panama. Um, and they they stopped issuing permits in 2016. And um, just this this fall, um, a new permit's been issued, and we're seeing some more wild-caught frogs come out of Panama. Were the permits uh, withdrawn because of conservation efforts or money? We actually money. don't really know. I've asked a couple of people why the permit stopped in 2016, and no one really had a, a solid answer. There was just a lot of speculation. Okay. So uh, we have two kinds of frogs you can – you can get one wild caught, like from Columbia, mm-hmm. and the other 
Well, actually, the ones from Columbia are captive bred. It's a captive breeding program in Columbia. Okay. So there's captive bred and there's wild. Correct. So you can still get wild? Yes. They're still permitting that? Mm -hmm. I have, I think, I think I have two species that are wild caught in my collection. Do you have a... Do you have a concern about their their the species survival? I mean, the being... ultimate goal is for successful successful captive breeding, so that all frogs in the hobby end up being captive bred frogs, and okay. that way you're not um, disrupting populations in the wild. So, and that's... you know, depending on an individual population, collecting some frogs could be an issue, or it might not be an issue. You know, depending on that population, and it also depends on the uh, the black market and the illegal export. That's having a significant impact. I mean, just this year, there I think there were two big busts at, I think, the Bogota airport in Colombia of um, a lot of these large obligates um, that were illegally caught and were trying to be exported. And that's where this uh, organization I was talking about, Tesoros de Colombia, um, took them and is trying to, you know, nurse them back to health. They were in pretty rough shape from what I understand. So if the black market's still alive and well, that... In- implies that the captive bred hasn't really caught hold enough because there's enough demand for people to mm. buy frogs on the black market. Right. Europe seems to be the worst place for the black market. Um, not that there's our problems here also. And I, I wouldn't say that the captive bred thing hasn't caught on. You have to be successful in rearing them. And some are harder to breed than others. You know, I have one of my wild caught groups. I've still yet to get them to breed. Um, the females are laying infertile eggs, but my little male just is not doing his job. And so, you know, I'm, I've had them for about a year and a half now. They will breed. It's just. So where do you see, do you see the black market fizzling out or is Europe too powerful? Too I would much? hope it would eventually, yeah. but there's always going to be someone wanting money and right. greedy and thinking they can do it. I mean, in, in the, in the dart frog community, it's very frowned upon and, you know, the, you, you, you know which frogs are and are not um, allowed to be exported. You know, if you see a, a certain species or a certain locality coming out that has never been exported before and, you know, no one's really talked about, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious. It's not, it's not something that you have to really do a ton of research on to figure out. And, you know, there's several um, localities in, in Europe that are – legal there but are not legal in the states Hmm. and so you just you don't see in the states i you know the reality is are there some in the states probably yeah but you know people just don't talk about them because they know they're illegal and so if someone is interested in dart frogs um it's not the kind of animal that you want as a pet because because pets imply taking them out and petting them and handling them. Correct. Uh, so you don't recommend you, – you call yourself a hobbyist yes, rather than a, a pet owner. So give us a little reason why people shouldn't get dart frogs as pets as opposed to hobbyists. So if, if – your expectation. I guess the expectations of someone who wants to get into this. Right. Which would what should they expect? So where where I would say some of the the initial biggest mistakes are made is you're at um, you know one of the big pet stores and you walk in and you're looking around and you see these really brightly colored dart frogs and you say oh I'm going to get one of those 
and you have no idea of what the husbandry needs are, that is a, a sure recipe for disaster. And um, they're, you know, they, they're not hard to do. It's just the, the biggest thing is the setup. And if you, if you set up your terrariums correctly and know the vitamin needs, the feeding needs, and the temperature and humidity needs, they're not that hard. But it's just you've got to do the research and the prep work. You know, when I set up a tank, and like I'm setting up a tank now, and it's probably going to take me, I mean, I'm only doing it, you know, half hour or an hour here every night. You know, it'll take me a couple of weeks to get it set up. Once it's set up, I will um, just break it in. I'll put the lights on it. I'll have the misting system on it. It'll be misting just like all the other tanks. It'll be treated just like all the other tanks. But I'll let it go for a good couple of months anyway. You know, I want my plants to be rooted and established. I want the um, the microfauna that I had a uh, springtails and springtails are uh, if you ever in the in the springtime walk outside in the snow and it looks like someone put a bunch of pepper on the ground and it's moving. Those are uh, temperate springtails, and I just I mean you can use temperate springtails, but I use tropical springtails. They're a good cleanup crew. And they also provide uh, a little snack here and there for the frogs and especially the babies when they first hop out of the bromeliads or whatever down to the ground. That's a, a primary source of food for them. And then you also add isopods, um, which are more closely related to a crab than a frog. Um, and they, um, they're they also a cleanup crew. They're um, pill bugs or doodle bugs you may have heard of as a, yeah. as a common name for them. And they also act as a cleanup crew and an occasional snack. And so you've kind of got this bioactive setup. You know, there's – I'm kind of hitting how to set a tank up backwards, I guess. But. Yeah, I thought – yeah, maybe we go start. Okay, so First of all, this is uh, this is Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. Dr. Hunt here is your host, and I'm talking to – at W 89.9 WERU in East Orland, talking to Tom Goodman, who is a – I'll say a frog hobbyist. You like the other terms. So, so, well, no. Now you're challenged to come up with another name every time you say that. Okay. So I just won't say it anymore. Oh, that's no fun. <laughs> I'll think of something. So we were talking – kind of got ahead of ourselves. Yes. <clears throat> so I like to have my listeners kind of understand the the process. So the okay. first thing is you get a tank. That, that's the very first that thing. That is the very and first how thing. how big should the tank be? How big or small? Depend. Just like with fish aquariums, bigger is always better. Um, I have three sizes of tanks I use depending on the type of frog I want to put in the tank. And um, they range from an 18 by 18 inch footprint, 24 inches tall, to a 24 inch long by 18 deep and 18 tall. And then my larger tanks, which is the one I'm working on now, is 36 inches long, 18 inches deep, and 24 inches tall. So the smaller ones, if you, if you use the aquarium nomenclature is like a 20-gallon Like around a, a 20 long or a 20 breeder, I think is what they call them. I mean, okay. you, they, you can get conversion kits where you can put um, a door on the front of it and stand it on in or on its side. I've never used those. I buy um, um, tanks that are specifically designed for terrariums. It's just okay, kind so, of a cleaner, easier way to do it. So a, uh, a fish tank wouldn't be as good as a terrarium tank? Um, I, I think it's personal preference. I wouldn't really say not as good. I will say that if you have a fish tank with access to the top, which is where our first tank was set up like that, it it is kind of a pain. 
because everything you do, you have to go stand, get up above the tank and go into it. Okay. And that can get rather challenging in it. It can also open you up for escapes. They're, they're quick and sneaky at times. So a fish tank set up like, like a fish tank is harder to maintain. So I, I would do? say that's not optimal, but it can be done. So easily. you put them on the side? Yeah. And then you have a conversion kit, which would put a piece of glass along the bottom to maintain the water reservoir, which we'll get to in a second. Yep. And, um, and then some doors on the front so you can access it straight in. So there's actually, when you put the aquarium on the side, the top of the aquarium is now facing you. You actually have a, a, a top. I mean, effectively. It's covered. Is that something you buy at a – Yeah, it, you can just – they call a, them conversion kits. Okay, so that's what a conversion kit is. Yes. Okay, so you're converting an aquarium. Okay, so you got the conversion, got the aquarium or a terrarium tank. Correct. Tipped up on the side, got your conversion. Now you have – you can look right into the aquarium. You have an empty terrarium sitting right, there. Right, just sitting there. Right. Okay. Uh, first of all, I just want to make sure my listeners can call at 469-0500 if they have any questions about dart frogs. Um, but we're setting up a, a dart frog home right now. Okay, so second step. Second step is a drainage layer. And what I do, and again, people do it differently. It's just kind of personal preference. I will drill a, a hole in the bottom back of the tank. And about, uh, I think I use inch and a quarter, if I'm not mistaken. And I'll put a bulkhead in it. And then I'll have a hose running down to a bucket behind the aquarium or behind the terrariums. And then a hose is it near the floor? I mean, uh, I mean, I, I use. I, is it going to be below the substrate? Yes, that you're going to put below, it? So I, I go typically about the center of the hole will be about an inch and a half off the bottom of the tank. Okay, and yeah. that, so I, I want to maintain some water in there. But I don't want the water to go all the way up to where my actual substrate is because okay. then it'll get saturated. So it's like a dra- the, the emergency drain in, a, drain in a sink, that little hole that – Yes. It yeah. Prevents, yeah. It prevents kind of, from yeah, overholding. That's actually not a bad analogy, yeah. Okay. So it's something like that. So you run that. Right. And then <clears> you put in – there's a couple different ways to do it. The way I do it is I get this um, um, lightweight rock. People use lava rock. Sometimes people use those uh, – I don't know what you call them. They're the, the plastic grid that you see on fluorescent lights sometimes. is you know, white with a little, like, eighth-inch grid pattern like, to them. Yeah, we have – yeah, we don't have those in here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you but, and I are looking anyways, at the ceiling. We'll, we'll, it's just, listen, basically, it's, just, it's, it's a type of rock that's very light. Okay. And you make that I, – I typically do about three inches, so that's well above where my drain hole is. Is it coarse, though? It, yeah, it's, it's probably it's lava rock, what, half inch in diameter. It doesn't it's, hurt it's the porous. skin. Doesn't hurt the skin of the frog. Uh, the frogs will never come in contact with it. Oh, okay, okay. We're building. Okay, We're starting so the base. First layer is that lava. That's yeah. kind of the drainage. That's the drainage layer, and water stays in there, and it you know it builds up bacteria and so forth, and then you have the overflow, so it doesn't go stagnant. Right. And then you put just a fiberglass screen, like you would get as a you know a, a window screen repair kit at the hardware store. Okay. Put that down, and then you put your substrate mix, which is generally is some derivative from um, an ABG mix, which is the Atlantic Botanical Garden. They have a, a mix of using fir bark, um, um, sphagnum moss, and, and other things, um, charcoal, and a few other things in it. And that's actually where you plant your plants, and that's what the frogs will come into contact with. Do you have to be careful where you get that that stuff? Yes, and again, if you've you know if you do the research that you should do before you you start, it 
that all jumps out at you very fast in the process. So if you go out in the backyard and dig up some stuff, yeah, I would you're going to run, run into trouble. You are because now you're introducing parasites from an environment where the frogs have not evolved in and may or may not have protections against those, and you're just you're opening yourself up to problems. Now, there is a, a, a group of hobbyists out there that, that go for the natural bioactive approach. I don't. I try to sterilize everything before it goes in the tanks because I feel I'm reducing the risks to my frogs and plants. So you're, the substrate's sterile, but then when you put your plants in, it, it will populate the right things. Yes. Is that what you're implying? I mean, that's okay. where you – I mentioned earlier the springtails and the isopods. Right. Um, they're in there. And, I mean, you're, you're going to get other things in there, you know, but uh, depending on what you feed to, you always have remnants of – your food sources that are crawling around and walking around. Okay. Which so, we can get to that too in a second. So that second layer is, is, is there another layer after that? After that, well, third, the most important layer, thing is leaves. leaves. And, and I do collect those outside. I'll get um, in the fall. Dead leaves? Dead leaves. Oak are best just because they're harder to break down. Um, you can also buy leaves like magnolia leaves are great and they're thicker and harder to break down. I, I use a combination but for the mass, I'll go outside. Um, you know, my house is, sits in a, uh, a mature oak forest. We have plenty of oak leaves. And I'll collect the leaves, and then when I'm ready to use them, I'll uh, get a big lobster pot and boil the leaves. Oh, okay. Or, um, Whole? You don't crunch them up into little? No. I mean, they'll take care of that for you. Okay. I mean, you can crunch them, tear them some if they're really big leaves. Um, okay. Or sometimes I'll, uh, I'll, I'll wet them down and then put them in the microwave for an extended period, and okay. that'll also cook anything. I'll Again, your, your approach is is not introducing exactly stuff that you don't want correct okay so you put those leaves on top of that last yes sphagnum moss and that kind of thing Uh okay how thick one inch two inch just like five Um, leaves or a bunch of leaves it's interesting because the more places the frogs have to hide the more bold they tend to be in general and so you know having a, a a couple inch layer of leaves is not a bad idea at all are there other things you can put in there for hiding places? And you Yeah, can, so what else you put in besides well, that? And then you plant. I mean, well, now, and, and again, we got a little bit ahead of ourselves again. Yep. What I tend to do before I do with the, do the substrate and so forth, I will do the background. And I tend to do what people call custom background simply because you're not buying it. You're doing it yourself. And I get I use a combination of great stuff. You get the hardware source. That stuff, you, it's that foam stuff you spray in the wall to seal cracks and keep and, air out. And it expands. It just expands. Okay. And you just kind of make designs or however you want to do it. Some people do solid backgrounds. I, I tend to like kind of a, a minimalistic approach, and I'll just make some, like maybe one-inch diameter lines, I guess, on the sides, and that'll give me places to attach plants to and the frogs to hop around on. And then um, you cover that in silicone. And the choice of silicone is important. I use... Uh, GE silicone one as it does not have any um, um, anti-molding agents and you know like silicone two does so you just kind of little things like that you watch and again if you have done the research you know go to um, can I say the name of a company um, yeah you can say the name right. there's this um, probably one of the bigger suppliers is Josh's frogs I think they're in Michigan and they have a, a lot of tutorials and you know there's others there's one down in um, um, Connecticut, New England Herpt, Herpt, Herptological, and both of those have a lot of how-to videos, and you can learn a lot really fast by watching those. So now you're putting in um, plants. That's and the next step. So and then you put maybe wood, or you put cork, or um, 
various other things, just structure. And then you can put attached epiphytic plants to that structure. You can put plants in the ground that actually need roots in soil. And then you let it go for a while. This may sound picky, but maybe important. When you're putting structures in a thing for frogs, do you need to put structures like up against so they're like um, not laying flat? Right. You want like tenting or put up against the the wall, the glass wall. So in other words, there's vertical vertical as well as horizontal yes. structures. Yeah, and, and, and again, it all kind of comes down to personal taste. You're, you're basically like... But the frogs don't care. I mean, the, the frogs will use from the ground up. You know, there are some frogs that tend to gravitate to the ground. There's others that tend to hang out more up high. So they need something to get up high on. What, what I have found is the males tend, and again, this is a, a big generality, but males tend to like being up high and calling. And the females tend to hang a little bit lower, but they're both at the same place. And I feed on the ground, and so they're all on the ground at some point when it's dinner time. Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so now you put your plants in. Yes, and it's whatever plants you think are are uh, specific to that species. Um, I mean, some people matter? use try to mimic an, an actual, you know, like say an Ecuadorian cloud rainforest or something. I tend to go for plants that are terrarium suitable that I like. Okay. And, you know, I kind of have a, you know, I have, I typically will do a, a certain number of bromeliads. I'll do a, usually a begonia or two, and then several epiphytic plants have up, you know, trail down and so forth. Okay. And that's something they can climb up on. Yeah. And it's, it's just kind of personal preference as to how you want it to look. The one of the big things you have to be, pay attention to, especially if you don't like trimming plants, is some of them will grow like weeds really fast and you you've really got to clean the tank out or it just gets completely overgrown very quickly before you get into diet and feeding um quickly you have to worry about humidity you have to worry about temperature and light correct so how do you uh do those three things humidity temperature and light so humidity i Humidity is challenging to measure because most of the, the the gauges available on the market that are at least affordable, they, they just become oversaturated and do not work. So what I did, I, I do not have, um, I do not monitor in-tank monitoring of that or temperature. Um, at first I did, I've got a grip on how the tanks reacted, and now I just kind of know by looking at it. Um, I, I'm in the basement of my house and it is strictly dedicated to the frogs. So I have a, uh, um, we have radiant floor heat in the basement. We've got, I have a oversized portable air conditioner, which only the frogs get an air conditioner in our house. No humans do, unless that, you're in the frog room. Is that why you spend so much time down in the basement? Yes. It's a great place in the summer. <laughs> That's what I thought. Okay. And, uh, and, 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 you know, basically you want to keep the humidity, um, I, I tend to like it in the, the 60s at n- night and in the maybe up to the 80s in the daytime. Okay, so it's pretty reasonable. It, it, it's pretty easy to maintain okay. once you get there. Okay. And then I, I maintain that. by have, I have an automatic misting system. I have a reservoir of just a Rubbermaid tub, water in that. It has a, a timer, and it just automatically mists the tank, and that's how the tank's water. So as that gets in there, it seeps down and then drains out the back into the bucket, the waste bucket that I have. So the misting helps the plants because that's how they get their water and also the the care of the the frog. Correct, because the the poison dart frogs do not drink. All the moisture that they get is absorption through the skin. 
That's important. It is, which kind of jumping a little bit back to something you mentioned earlier about handling them. That's one reason why you don't really handle them um, because anything on your hands could very significantly impact their well-being. Um, if, if I'm going to handle them, I will put on nylon, you know, like surgical gloves or exam gloves, whatever you call those, and I'll do it with that. Now, that being said, they are quick, and a lot of times you'll open the tank up to feed them, and you end up with a frog sitting on your shirt. And and then you're in emergency panic mode. But it make a very pretty tie. It could make a, a your great tie? tie clip or cufflinks. They're beautiful yes. yeah. little animals. Very we'll colorful. But in this case, you in this case, you basically freak out and <laughs> and hopefully catch the frog on your chest as opposed to it hopping on the floor because then it gets under the racks and they become very difficult to catch and they will not survive for very long because of the uh, the humidity outside of the tank. You know, fifty percent or below in the wintertime even. And they cannot survive that. Okay, so that's what the long. misting. Okay, now talk about hand, uh, handling. Uh, we call them poison dart frogs. That's the famous, the, the the indigenous people down in South America took these frogs and t- took the there's, their skin is poisonous. Yeah, they, right? they they excrete up excrete yes, and they would use that for their darts. I mean, yes. everyone knows about that, right? So tell us about. Um, about that and about how you can change that. Not that you still should handle them. Um, we do, but I will take a caller first before we get into that. Michelle from Elliot. Hi, darling. <laughs> Good. Hi, Tom. Hi. <laughs> my so wife, my wife Michelle from Elliot. Yeah. Oh, you mean all your callers don't call you darling? Uh, <laughs> they might. Uh, we don't know. Yeah, <laughs> after the show. <laughs> Tom, I would love to hear your favorite frog escape story. Good question. You know, there's no frog escape story that's a favorite because, again, <laughs> that's just – that's a bad situation. What's your most nightmarish? Thank I, you, Michelle. I one time – thanks, Michelle. I one time had uh, – I think it was last year um, – a frog get out. I didn't know – it was in the morning. And I, uh, I I was feeding it. It was in a grow-out container, which is just uh, like a Sterilite or Rubbermaid container. You pop the top open, put some food in, and it must have hopped out. And I did not know this. And that evening, I was back in the frog room doing frog stuff. And I walked into the little room under the stairs where I have a sink. And um, I looked down on the ground, and there was some – it was moist down there because of our pressure tank you know, um, sweats. And it, it keeps the ground wet there. And I see this odd shape. I turned the light on, and it was this frog had <laughs> actually hopped probably 15 feet from where it, its grow-out container was into this room and was sitting there. And that's pretty much what kept it alive. And I picked it up, and I gave it a nice soaking and then um, put it back in there. And it was, it was touch and go for that, for that evening. And um, it's still around, actually. And how long do they live? Um. 10 to 15 years. Wow. And, you, know, you can figure if you do everything right, you know, 10 years on average. And the the size, are they do they get bigger in captivity or smaller or they get about the size you expect in the wild? Um they 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 stay about the same size as the okay. wild. Um you know the they they a lot of them they call thumbnails and they basically if you put them on your thumbnail and let them sit there, they will not overhang it. So they're quite small. Right, tiny little things. Yeah. And those are the ones – those are some of my favorites. And then the some of the other ones I have are a good two and a half inches long. And the colors. What kind of colors do you – I mean, tell Across the spectrum. Yeah. You know, I have some that are 
blue, yellow, orange, red. It's gorgeous. All different colors. Yeah, that's that's a big appeal. There, it's they're quite gorgeous. Well, one fascinating thing I definitely want to get in is is this uh, change in poison. Yes, skin. So tell listeners about that. So, so in the wild, they're yeah, poisonous. It, 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 well, in two degrees of poisonous. Some are more poisonous. Some you can touch in the wild, no problem. Um, the uh, the the one that one of the ones you have to have a permit for in the state of Maine. The, it's the actually the most toxic vertebrae on the planet is a uh, Phyllobates terribilis. It's a rather chunky, I'd say probably two inches long, bright yellow, and that's the one that is primarily used with the the darts and the arrows and stuff that you've seen on National Geographic. And um, it actually, yeah, anecdotally, it's said that it could take down just with the toxin on its skin, you know, 19 adult human males, just with the toxicity on one of their skins, on the skin Jeez. of one of the frogs. Um, they aren't, weren't necessarily treated all that well by the natives when they go to extract the poison for their darts, but it's a resource from that perspective. Right. And so the science isn't completely settled on how they get this poison, but ants are the primary um, source. And, you know, when an ant stings you, it hurts, and that's formic acid being injected into you. Well, the frogs take the formic acid, and there's thoughts that termites might be involved in some other things also, and they metabolize that and then secrete it as this highly toxic poison. So the information I had come across is uh, alkaloids in plant materials. Is that another source, or is that uh, debunked? That's not going to be in these because they are carnivores. They are not – there's no herbivory in their um, diet. So where would we get alkaloids in a – Diet. Okay, Again, so, the science is not completely settled so on this. Still, it's still evolving. Yes. So right now, it's the formic acid from that. That's from the pretty from much given. Their, so the so their diet provides. There, it is through the diet, whatever it may that, be. That's the important. That's yes. the, important that's aspect the key. Of this. Okay. So in captivity, um, I mean, I like to tell people, you know, don't mess with me. I'm learning to use my blowgun. But <laughs> the reality is, in captivity, they are not poisonous. Even the most toxic vertebrae on the planet is not because of its diet. In captivity, the, the base of their diet is um, fruit flies. And they, um, by eating the fruit flies, they do not get the toxins they need to metabolize, and therefore they are not toxic. So you could sit there and hold in your hand one of these frogs that in the wild would kill you in a matter of seconds. How long would it take a wild caught to become, when they get captured and they're in your terrarium, on that I, diet, have they studied how long – does it take days, weeks, or months to become detoxified? I don't actually know that. That's a good question. Um, the species that are the most toxic are all captive bred and readily available. And so, you know, they're just – that just isn't really an so issue. So they're not toxic. So, yeah, most of you know, what you see is not toxic. You know, and then the ones that you're bringing in that are wild caught, their toxicity is far less. Okay. So that's not real. It's just that not really an issue. That doesn't mean – you should pet your frog. Well, you should pet your frog for the frog's safety, not yours. Right, right. But that's just another yes reason. Okay, so the um, that's interesting. So you can so they're safe. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's not. I mean, other than in you know general conversation to sound funny, you can say otherwise. But yes, right. they are safe. You can scare people. They don't <laughs> exactly. Know. <laughs> don't come into my house. <laughs> don't come into the basement. Not that they would. So diet is kind of interesting, uh, reptiles versus amphibians. Um, reptiles can, can eat live animals or dead. 
But amphibians have a special requirement for diet. Well, maybe I'm trying to lead you into a – I mean they're, they're visual hunters and it's kind of interesting. So you can see a frog sitting there. You put your fruit flies in and you know they kind of move around. But the fruit flies have a habit of just kind of stopping and freezing. And a frog can see one of them and it kind of you know maybe turns or hops over there. And it will just sit there staring at it maybe you know within a half inch from it. And it won't do anything. And the fly is just sitting right in front of it. And until that fly moves, it'll just sit there and keep looking Staring at it. And as contest. soon as it moves, tongue comes out and it's it's a yummy snack. So I guess what I was trying to get is that amphibians need live food. Yes. they can't. You can't give them a can of dog food no. and let them eat it. So it has to be live. And that's very important for people to understand if they're going to get into frogs. They, has, yes. they have to be live. So you can you can buy fruit flies. As your 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 staple source, but uh, bananas at uh, Shoprite yeah, now. But now, but then <laughs> so now not- you're attracting fruit flies that are that fly. We when oh. what you're feeding them are either fri- flightless or wingless fruit flies oh. because they fly around the tank. The frogs still aren't going to be able to catch them. Oh, so they're quite well. Actually, they're pretty acrobatic, but yeah, they just they're never going to hit that. Um, and so you, if you're going to do this, you you need to be prepared to raise fruit fly cultures. And I have, um, I use this 32 ounce plastic, you know, like deli cups. And I, I have 12 cultures going, um, that are, that I set up each week. And so, I, and I've actually got a month's worth of those that, um, and then just every week I set a cult, set a, set 12 up and then get rid of 12. So your seed culture you ordered from someplace? Originally I did. Yes. And I've, I've had these cultures. I haven't bought fruit flies probably four years. I've just been culturing them. Well, as, as we know, the fruit fly was famous for doing a lot of uh, genetic studies because yes. of the I mean, they're the really genes. easy to, to Yeah, and they culture. reproduce. Yes, readily. So when you open up the can, it's not like the fruit flies in your, in your kitchen where they fly around. Not intentionally, but <laughs> you do sometimes get um, a batch that will go bad and they will develop flight. And you open it, and then just poof, a bunch of flies fly out. And then oh, you, you say fun. several choice words and stick the container in the freezer because you just don't want anything to do with that. And you just that you don't yell upstairs to your wife, say, "Honey, uh, I ha- I have never had a fruit fly complaint." Ah, uh, and that's really important. She could be picking her battles, though. No, never. And oh. Actually, we had a cricket upstairs, and I was getting a little bit of grief for that. And then um, my dog actually found the cricket, and it was a mole cricket, which is not the same species that I breed in the basement. So I am still cricket-free upstairs, okay. cricket and fly-free You're upstairs. Solved that. Yes. So what else do you feed besides uh, fruit flies? Um, you can do other snack treats. Like I said, the isopods and the um, um, calimbla or springtails, uh, those are those? always in there. Yeah, I have, I have cultures of those also. Okay. I mean, yeah, this, like I said, I've taken over a 18 by 16-foot basement. And that's just for the hobby. Now, uh, there's a term called dusting. Yes. Tell us about dusting. So with fruit flies or any of the food you give them, they're not going to get all the vitamins and mineral, minerals that they need. Um, you, they're just not getting the diversification. And so the way you get around that is you you give them vitamins, just like you take your multivitamin every day. And um, there's I, I typically feed on um, – Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Those are my feeding days. And each day, I will use a different um, um, vitamin for them. You know, you have a multivitamin, um, a multivitamin with calcium. Calcium is very important. 
um, and then a, uh, a D3 vitamin, and that's necessary to help metabolize the calcium. So how do you dust them? Dusting, you just, again, I use those 32-ounce cups. You tap your flies in it out of their culture cups, and then you just get the powder vitamin and just sprinkle a little bit on them, kind of shake them up, and now they're covered in the vitamins. And they can still walk around and move? Yeah, they can still walk around and move. And the key is to check and see when your misting system is going to come on because if you put <laughs> the flies in right before it mists, you just wasted that effort. They don't get all gooey? They don't get gooey. They just washes all the vitamins off of them, and oh, then you, and then- you it's like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> So when you set up your your terrarium, your home, you said you wait about a month for the ecosystem. I'll wait a few months typically. I mean, I've got some tanks that have been going for – I have one tank that's been there for almost a year that has nothing in it yet. And then you introduced one frog or two frogs? Again, depends on the – what you're you're looking at, which type of frog. Um, I mean, the ones I like typically do best in pairs. Um, I have a few that are set up with uh, one male and two females and – that seems to be working pretty well. You sometimes get egg eating um, by the females eating each other's eggs. Um, I haven't seen that that much. And um, I have feeding a, them more help. It doesn't hurt. I mean, I just think. I mean, you also help. have to worry about obesity, though. That is because everybody likes a nice, fat, plump frog. You think that that's healthy, but that they actually have lots of liver and kidney issues, like we do, yeah. with um, less learned. Yes, and so you've kind of got to pay attention to that. But yeah, I. I think it's important to make sure that the frogs are not hungry. You know, and that's also going to have them breeding. If there's if there's proper moisture, if, if the conditions are proper, you know, including food, moisture, temperature, and everything, they're going to be more likely to breed. How about light? I use um, LED lights, and um, I'm, I'm converting the whole room to uh, LED lights with these controllers. And the controllers are kind of cool. They uh, they ramp up, so in the morning they come on, and it's only ten percent intensity. And that goes for about an hour, and then you get you know, 20, 40, 50, 80, 100% intensity. And it oh. stays at 100% intensity for you know, three or four hours, kind of like morning, and then it starts ramping out. Exactly. So oh, you're right. trying to emulate the natural oh. environment. I, I guess I started making – I think I got my first controller about a year ago, a year and a half ago. And um, I like the results, and I like how it looks. So it's uh, 12, 12 and 12, 12 hours light, 12 hours dark? Um, I'm running mine on – 13 hours to 14 hours right now of light of light. Okay. Uh, you don't mix species, do you? No, that's a no, no. And and actually more so the mixing species are mixing similar locales. So you can have the same species of frog are collected from different locations in their national environment. And in the hobby, the idea is to try and keep those locations distinct and separate. So you do, even though they could breed and produce viable offspring, you you do not want to mix those. It's kind of like African cichlids. There's a lot of people like um, uh, cichlids from yeah, uh, Lake Tanganyika. You, they are, they're like that too. They have these different locales, and you try not to mix them so that you keep that locality um, you know, in the hobby. Right. Okay. Uh, so how many frogs can you put in a tank? You said three. I think the, I have but one tank that has six in it, and they're, they're rather communal. They do not seem – the males don't seem to fight – and I've I've gotten several rounds of offspring from them, and you don't do anything special for the reproduction. They just you just put them in there with and... that particular type. I put these little like uh, it's a small coconut, cut it in half. It's cleaned out, just just coconut shell, and it has like a little opening in it, you know, like a little round hut opening. And you set like that an igloo there. almost an igloo, yeah, like an igloo. Good okay. good analogy. And you put a little petri dish under it, 
and just kind of moisten it a little bit, put the top on it, and you'll have eggs in there if they're ready, you know, the next day or in a couple days. Oh, you just kind of let it. Just let them do their thing. And again, all of it seems to be proper setup. So the tank. when they have when they have the youngins, do you when you get them out of the tank? Because won't the adults eat them or that that varies. Um, I tend to leave them. Well, again, it depends on the species that you're dealing with. The ones I like the best, the ones that are the obligate egg feeders, I'll leave them in the tank probably till they're about four or five months old, roughly. Um, I was talking to a, a very respectable breeder this weekend, and she said that as soon as they morph out, she pulls them out and puts them in grow-out tanks so she can monitor their food intake better. So they'll stay in the tank before they're morphed. So, so it, yeah, yeah you don't, you're don't you not going to pull until they morph out. Now, okay. with other species, you pull out the eggs, and then you hatch the eggs. Oh, okay. you, you feed the tadpoles, then you, you morph them out like that. Again, it, that that's dependent on the variety you're working with. So when you're feeding tadpoles, you need the unfertilized eggs? No, you can, on you those can, types, you're using tadpole. You can get like tadpole oh, food, okay. like fish food. All right. Well, we're, we're almost out of time. Uh, is there anything you want to tell our listeners about dart frog uh, hobby? You know, if, if you're into that kind of stuff, it, they're pretty cool. Um, just do your research before you get them. You know, don't go to the pet store, grab a frog, and go with it because you will most likely not be successful. And just, I think, at 30 seconds, how do you transport? How do they transport them? Oh, we're out of time. Can you say one word? How do you transport them? Very carefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, this is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals, Aardvarks and Zebras. And until next time, don't enjoy your pet and don't forget to give them a hug.